Hey everybody, I'm Jay Worthy and this is the podcast for anyone trying to inject some adventure, purpose and balance into their lives. 28 Summers is all about living life adventurously, seizing the moment and optimizing your life. Now my guest today is Cyril Deramo. Cyril is an adventurer, a paddler, a dreamer and an entrepreneur. French-born and now a US citizen, he has lived in France, Spain, England, Italy, Argentina, Brazil and the US and he speaks five languages fluently. In 2016, he and his teammates rode into the record books by taking first place in the Great Pacific Race, rowing 2,400 nautical miles from California to Hawaii. In this episode, we chat as he gears up for a solo and unsupported kayak attempt from San Francisco to Honolulu. This guy is 100% energy, and I absolutely love this chat. Cyril, welcome to the 28 Summers podcast. Thank you so much for making time. I'm really excited to chat to you today, particularly excited to talk to you about your big adventure uh, that you've got coming up. But thank you for making time. Thank you. So happy to be here. Awesome. Well, look, I always like to start these conversations with, you know, let's go way back to young Cyril. I knew you grew up in, uh, in rural France. I'm curious to know what life was like back then. You know, were you a really adventurous kid? Were you kind of feral and outdoors or were you a bit more indoors at, at that age? I always like to go back to that as well because it, it means so much. I, like you said, my, uh, uh, my village was 5,000 inhabitants, very small village next to Lille, north of France. And, but those are my roots and the roots is a family. And th- this is crucial. I was not the kid like crazy. It was really just an eventful. But this is the base that created the, the balance in the personality, the balance in, in, uh, um, in everything, basically. I was going to school by bike and I was coming back. And, you know, until 18, I probably stayed home um, and just lived the life of a, a family. So my dad was cardiologist. Uh, my mom is mother at home. We are five kids in the family. I've got three brothers and a sister. It was very family-oriented. You know, when you have five kids, you just do... In the summer, you go to vacation all together, and and it's just uh, great. Um, those are my roots, and and my parents, their strength was to allow me to create my own wings and push me off, and let me let me do what what I felt like doing, and that only started, I would say, with when I was eighteen years old. Uh, in fact, before when I finished, it's called the baccalaureate, so it's a twelfth grade, or I don't know in England what's it. But before you finish your high school, basically, uh, before starting university, and you know, being in that cocoon, I kind of was a little bit low maturity. What you know, I'd um, I'd follow what my older brother was doing, and and my parents said, okay, you need to get a bit more mature. So how about you take a year off, and before you start university, to figure out what you want to do. Let's take go as a foreign exchange student somewhere. Where would you like to go? And I said America, and that's another story. But I ended up in Arkansas, <laughs> out of no, everywhere, and I didn't care. I loved, uh, loved, loved my year over there. I started playing American football as a kicker because I was playing soccer. That was my sport. I ended up in, in the U.S. and I loved the fact that I was in a foreign environment where. Everything was new. Everything was a bit challenging that I had to take my own decisions. And then I grew in maturity and I said, I love to speak English. I want to do that again. I want to learn more languages. And that's how I triggered international uh, business school. That's a, that's a beautiful gift from your parents as well to encourage you to kind of spread your wings. And it's, um, you know, we're both parents as well. So, you know, it's not easy to do to kind of let your, let your children go out there. I think for them to know that that was the right thing for you, that's really, that's really beautiful. And, and it seems like that was the start of your kind of adventurous, like maybe that was the spark that started things. Oh, 100%. 100%. From then on, it was changing country every year. So I did this two years in France, uh, first in Lille to do, it's like economics, uh, two years. So then you start and you have uh, entry for university, which is a three-year program. And that was an international school, uh, business school. So the first year was actually in Oxford. Uh, studying in Oxford, and then you do company placement. I did three years in uh, three months in London, and then the second year was the whole promo would go to Madrid, Spain, 
for seven months. And my internship was in Buenos Aires for three months. And then it was seven months in Paris. My internship was in Paris. And after that, so I had my diploma and master's degree in international business. And I would speak Spanish, right? And then I say, okay, what do I do from here? And in France, back then, I'm 44 years old, so it was a long time ago. When you finish your studies, you still had to do a military service. You could either do the military for a year or work for a French company overseas. And, and then the, it's, it's a, a three-way that works really well because the company is paid by the government. And I'm still you know, fulfilling my, my duty uh, for the country by kind of working from them, helping France being overseas. So basically, I worked for Peugeot in Milan, and I moved to Italy. And for 19 months, I, then I learned Italian, and I lived in Italy. And then it was like, wow, I, I want to do more of this travel. But before enough, I want to do a trip around the world. So for a very little budget nowadays, it would be 7,000 euros for the one year of traveling. I did 26 countries, backpacking, and all South America. And then I learned Portuguese. I love Portuguese. After my one year of travel, that was a blast. I said, I'm not ready to work yet. And actually, my... You know, all my friends that did master's degree, they were working for banks and, you know, and like super um, investment banking, all that stuff. And I was like, I'm not ready yet. I want, I want to live life to the fullest. I didn't care about how much money I would make. I have time. So I moved to Brazil for six months. I was playing soccer. And through all this, my soccer was my sport. It was the best way for me to make friends. I mean, you arrive in Brazil, you play in any kind of park, you have friends right away. And I taught English, believe it or not, in Brazil, in that little village in the middle of nowhere. And I love Brazil. But then, you know, I, it was like, okay, I need to work now. <laughs> so, <laughs> then I came back to France. I mean, it's, it's, and it moved on. Every year I was changing country. I love it, though. And I, it's really interesting because we're, we're very similar age. We're virtually the same age. And, um, and I, I kind of did the opposite. I kind of went straight from school into university and then kind of went straight, accidentally kind of fell into a career and then spent 20 years in, in one industry. And I was actually chatting to a friend of mine this morning. Um, and he, you know, we probably all identify the same way now as we all kind of identify as adventurers. We're exploring the world. We want, you know, we have this restlessness, right? That was the way that we described it. Sounds like you kind of had that restlessness. You probably have it now, but you certainly had it when you were younger. And that was just why you wanted to go out and see the world. Is that, is that a good way to describe it? Right. Yeah. Well, it's part of my personality. I'm a 100% extrovert. I'm a, I don't know if you know Enneagram. I'm a type seven. It's enthusiastic. And I just need, I, it's, it's part of my being just to go after and do it. And I love, like I said, in Arkansas, I started to say, I love spontaneous things. I love to be in an environment that is not, not friendly, but that is unfamiliar. I just love that new thing. Like you live in Brazil for breakfast. You go out and you say, what is breakfast? It's not the same in France. You go to India. What is breakfast? It's different. Like simple things because, become amazing, right? That's what I love. So I, can, I mean, we can keep going on. But after I lived a year in France, I got bored. Then I found this company that says, well, you've lived in, a, you've been in South America. We need a general manager to start a company in, in, in Argentina. Would you move to Argentina? So I moved to Mendoza and opened a subsidiary French company for barrels in the wine business. And so I was in Mendoza for a year and a half. I loved it, loved the Argentines. And, and then after that, I went back to France. You know, it's just one thing after the other. And then I met my wife. She's American. And, and that, that company said, well, since you have an American wife, you could have a green card easily. Would you want to stay in the wine business and, and work in California um, for you know, this, this company, we do consulting for winemakers. We help winemakers make better wine. And I, had, I was blocked a little bit in France because I wanted to work in the wine business. In some way, they were saying, well, you're from Lille. What do you do in the wine business? Have a beer, you know? <laughs> and, and there's, you know, it goes back to saying what Americans are, are amazing for is, you want to work in wine business? Go for it. I mean, if you're not good, you know, if you're not good, you're going to be out. If you're good and service is good and you try your best, you could do anything you want. So that was freeing. And I said, okay, let's go to California. And that was back in 2008. I moved here 20, 12 years ago. So, and so that's when you, you kind of essentially landed in San Francisco area. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Near Napa. Yep. 
And then, uh, so that's, I didn't know that aspect of your story, but that's really interesting. And, and I think that I'm right in saying that when you landed in the kind of San Francisco Bay Area, the, the love of the ocean started to really evolve. Is that, is that right? Yeah, well, before I was soccer, you know, I told you I lived in Italy, Spain, yeah. Brazil, Argentina. That was soccer. <laughs> My trip around the world, I go to Thailand and start playing soccer. With, so it was soccer. I arrived in the U.S. and I played soccer. But I don't know. I didn't like the, the, the way they played. And I was just going to the gym. And I'm not like a gym rat. I like, I like to train, but for a purpose. <clears throat> I like to have fun when I do something. And this friend I met at the gym, actually, he was from Fiji. His name is Tevita. He said, Zero, well, you should come with me. Paddling with me. And we went paddling right under the Golden Gate. I started, it's a, a canoe, it's called Outrigger Canoe. Uh, those Polynesian canoes, there are six in a row, six people in the craft, and you have a, like an Outrigger. And I started paddling there. That's when I started, eight year, 10 years ago only. And started doing small races, eight miles. And at that point, I didn't know much. You know, I didn't know much about racing long time. I remember the first race I did was, was eight miles which is like 45 minutes of racing. And I was so pumped. I woke up at four o'clock in the morning to eat my pasta. So I, I would have my carb load. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a blast. And then from eight miles, I did a race of 12 miles and 30 miles. And, and after the next was, okay, there's this one race from Catalina Island to Newport Beach. It's 30 miles. How do you train for 30 miles? It's going to be five hours. Okay. That was the next one. And then the next one was, okay, there's this race in Molokai. It's in Hawaii from the island of Molokai to Oahu. That's a world championship of our rigor. There's 100 canoes. It's amazing from around the world. Let's do this. So I trained for a year. I did this first race, arrived in Oahu like six hours. Whoa, that was a blast. I want to do it again. So I did. And then I started to see that I'm not, you see me, I'm not the strongest. I'm not the fastest. And, but I can keep going. And I started to, to have... This, this taste for longer endurance. But again, I'm not a longer endurance. I'm not like skinny. If you see the cyclists that are super skinny and they're like fast, fast, fast. No, I'm just, I'm your average guy. And that's why I like to go back to where I'm from. It's like, I'm a little soccer player in my little town. That's it, you know? And after that, do you want me to keep going on how it? Well, I, I, the only thing I just wanted to chime in there was that I'm smiling a lot because I, I, um, I find that personally really inspirational. And I know that a lot of my listeners will as well, because often we see these people uh, that do these amazing challenges and it looks like they were crafted especially for that. You know, when you look at kind of mountain runners and, um, you know, mountain climbers and they yeah. look, they look like that's what they were put on this planet to do. Yeah. And then, I, you know, I don't, I can't, I can only see your head and shoulders, but the way you just described it, I think is really, is really perfect. You know, that you're, you're doing these amazing challenges and you're a, you know, you're a 44 year old guy. You weren't then, but you are now a 44 year old guy. And I love that because I think that is a really strong message to people that do what you love. And, and then the other thing that you say, which really resonates with me, because I feel the same way is, you know, when I do anything, I'm never the strongest, I'm never the fastest, but there's something about an ability to just kind of endure it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get there the quickest or you're going to, you're going to set any, well, you will probably set records, but, but I wouldn't necessarily, but there's, there's an ability to just endure, to just keep going. And so one of my questions for you was going to be, do you think that was the intoxicating kind of element of it for you? Cause you started off on eight miles and then 16 and then 32 yeah. and built from there. Was yeah. it that, was it that realization that, Hey, I'm well, pretty good at just going the distance. Yeah. But in, in general, my philosophy is do what makes you vibrate. <laughs> uh, in Brazilian, it's vibração. Vibração. So here's the thing. You can go after happiness. What is happiness? Okay, I want to be more happy. What do you do? You have a better job? Maybe you're going to work too much. You want a better car? You have to pay for it every month. So you have to be your house. You have to travel more. Then, you know, there's what makes you happy? Well, Making me happy is so many components in life that it's hard to define. But if you start with the small things, what makes you vibrate? What makes you happy? Like, not happy. It's a wrong word again. What makes you, like, feeling great? Like, if you have a meal with your friend, it could be good with a pub to have a beer. And you love them that, that moment. You love to take your kid on a weekend and sleep in a tent. You love Do more of this. Do more of what makes you vibrate. And I started small, and I, I felt like, well, this 40 mile, you know, when you reach that wall, when you think you can't go 
and then you keep going and yet you have the, this emotion that arose like yeah, I made it and you you do it with your friends that are so you share the passion with them I love this so I do more of this you know and then pushing the envelope a little bit okay well it's threshold like I started I tell you that eight miles was a big step for me and then 12 miles and then when you do five or six of the 12 miles eight miles feels easy so the next step is 40 miles 40 miles you do three of those and then it feels feels easy and then you want a little bit more not everybody's like this you might be very happy I paddle every day with my friend Mark from Catalonia he's happy to do his one hour that's it that's his personality you know I like to do a little bit more so the next one was that 100 miles that's 12 hours and then that's when you say okay how do I learn about this how do I nutrition is going to be important you know I don't want to have a hypothermia I need to eat when I'm not hungry what's the best food then you ask people that know right but I want to go back to your question originally it's, it's, uh, it's like what what is the definition of success is it arriving first or is it having a blast when you do it and I remember doing the first, after the race of the 100 miles, I did the 440 miles. It's a race called the Yukon River Quest. And you're a kayaker. You have to look into it, the Yukon River Quest. It's, it's, on, it's, on, my 50, it's on my 50 by 50 uh, list. It's something that I really want to do. Oh, my God. You have to do it. And those Canadians are amazing. You start at noon. And you're so much north in the Yukon territories that in July, there's almost no night. So at 11 p.m., the sun starts to go down at midnight. It's a little bit dark. And then at one, uh, one o'clock in the morning starts to rise again. And you paddle through the night. The first leg is like 20 hours, 24 hours. It's amazing. And you got to do this. We're going to do I it need, together. I, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> and the definition of success, what is it? Is it arriving first or is it having a blast? Like the, I did that race three times on a six-man, four-man, and two-man. The one that I had the most fun with was a two-man where I was training with a friend and he heard his back. And two weeks before, I called another one. I said, Galen, you're going to come with me. I'm, I'm not not going. I got to go. He said, yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm not fit. And it's okay. We'll just go. We'll stop as many times as we want. And of course, we had to stop when we were like out. I mean, after 14 hours of paddling, there's six more to go. That's the first leg. Second leg is 18. Third leg is 14 hours. We're like, we'll take our time. That was the one I enjoyed the most. Because I was here to support him. He was here to support me. We were enjoying the moment. You know, we were not racing. We stopped. We looked at the river. We heard the birds. Oh, such a blast. That's the definition of success. It's not being first. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and that really speaks to me. And I'm sure it will to a lot of other people. I think sometimes we can be in so much of a hurry in life, can't we? You know, I often think that it's a silly thing to say, but if I could ever go back and give a younger version of me any advice, I don't have any regrets in life. But the one piece of advice I'd probably give is just, just slow down a little bit, just like take it all in, you know, don't be in so much of a hurry. Um, so yeah, I love that. I think you're right. Um, I've got this challenge coming up later on this year that I mentioned to you before we recorded where I'm pack rafting the length of the River Thames. And somebody asked me the other day, how long is that going to take? And I said, I don't know. Nobody, nobody's ever done it before that they that they've posted online, and I haven't done it before, so I don't know. Awesome. I'll let you know. I'll let you know when I've done it. Please, <laughs> please. Oh, do you have to have a map? Here's the thing: you have to communicate about it because somebody will see it and will see, "Wow, this is so cool!" You know, I want to do that too. I want to some, do something else. That's really part that of the things that I want to do is communicate. So, because you never know who you're going to inspire. You know, and here's, remember I, did, I told you the trip around the world I did, I was 25. So I went to my little village, Saint-Guin-en-Bénantois. There's three schools and no, there's actually two schools, but they're like different grades. And I went with my backpack before I left and a school of 10 year old, I speak of a certain way, I speak of a school of tw- uh, class of 12, class of eight year old, different ages, I, sp- I say different things, right? But basically came down to, this is my backpack, here's my shoes, I've got walking shoes because I wanna walk in the mountain. I've got sandals because I wanna be able to have them wet and walk, blah, blah, blah. I have a map on the wall, here are the countries. Anyway, six years later, I was living in the US already. This guy knocks on my door with his bike and his three friends, he said, we're going around the world in bicycle and we're from Saint-Germain-Antois. And five years, six years ago, you're the one who gave us the spark. I said, what? And I did not remember the kid. I didn't remember because I spoke to about maybe 50 kids, 60 kids. 
And he said, this is so cool. And now he was going around the world looking on microcredits. You know, those microcredits when you give, you, you get, you lend a hundred dollars to um, like somebody in India and then they buy a bike and they work and they, they give it back to you. And so he was looking at all the initiative of microcredit around the world. And then that would probably inspire somebody else. It's like a domino effect. And now I love it. So I will do any speech to any class, anytime before, oh my, like I spoke to a thousand people before my ocean, first ocean crossing. And now I'm, this is why I'm so available to podcasts like this, because your audience, they might listen to who's that crazy French guy. And they say, wow, you know, my trigger. I don't know who, maybe it's a guy in Brazil who's going to listen, listen to your podcast. You don't know. Yeah. You, you've just perfectly summarized exactly why I launched this podcast, right? So, you know, there are, like any journey in life, Cyril, it's not like a perfectly straight line and all good. Like there's ups and downs, there's peaks and troughs. And launching a podcast when you've got no experience of doing it is, a, is an emotional and, and difficult roller coaster. And on the moments when, you know, my motivation levels dropped and I thought, you know, maybe, maybe people are not listening and you, because they're early on, you don't see many listeners or whatever. And then yeah, you just start to get these messages from people who say, oh my God, I, I, I listened to your podcast and because of you, I'm, you know, I'm cycling around the world. And, and I actually had that message come through to me because they heard the Mark Beaumont interview that I did. So yeah, you perfectly summed it up. De- definition of success. Your success is one person being influenced by what you say. If you say one person per podcast, yeah. that's worth it. Yeah, for, no, no question, no question. And we've talked about it already. I always talk about it on this pod because I'm immensely proud of it, but I'm a dad. So actually, even if even if the only people that I inspire would be my kids, I'd be over the moon with that as well. And I love the fact that the podcast and they listen and they hear these incredible stories and I'm spotlighting not always the the people that are you know front and center on the TV all the time, but all these incredible stories of people that are doing amazing things. So. Yeah, you perfectly summarized it. Yeah, and we need we need more of this because here in America, you ask a kid, okay, who do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be Beckham. I want to be here in America would be I want to be uh, Stephen Curry, yeah. you know, the basketball player, or yeah. LeBron James. And those guys are stars. They're inspiring people, but they're they're like the bolt eagle. You see them from far, but you'll never see them from close. Well, I describe myself as a as a cow. I'm a regular cow, <laughs> but if you come closer, you'll say that I've got wings. Yeah, and I want to show those kids. I'm, they can relate to me because I'm the guy next door. I'm, and I want them to see me. And then they think, okay, well, he's done it. You know, it's not. I can do it too. It's good to be a cow, man. It's good. It's good to be a oh, cow. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, you a little while ago you touched on ocean crossing. So we were talking about your journey and the Yukon and and Catalina and all these incredible things that you've done. At what point did ocean crossings kind of come into your mind and you started thinking about those? Because you took on you took on a rowing challenge first, right? So we'll talk. Maybe we will talk a bit about that, and then we'll talk about the big one. Well, okay. So I live in San Francisco, and I stumbled upon this website uh, called the Great Pacific Race, and it's one of your um, uh, uh, British uh, compatriots, uh, Chris Martin, who was doing that race. And the race is from California to Hawaii, so it's it's really like my neighborhood. It starts from right there, like two hours away from where I live. And on the website, Chris says you don't have to be a rower uh, to cross an ocean. I said, "What do you mean? You don't have to be a rower?" You know. So I looked into it. I called him. And I say, yeah, well, you know, you've done um, several hundred uh, races that are 400. And ocean rowing is a lot about mental. It's about um, what happens between your two ears, right? And rowing, you can learn how to row. Uh, the technique of ocean rowing is not the same as flat water because it's choppier. Of course, you know, you need to learn how to row. But so I said, okay, when's your next race? Next race is 2014, and that was back in 2012 that I saw this website. Say, okay, I've got two years to find the money to buy a boat, create it true, and learn how to row. Because I was an outrigger canoe paddler. So that's on one side and then on the other side. Right. And then I, yeah. well, that's what I did. Like very easily, I just started, then I started learning to scull. I, I took a few classes, but I found out very fast that those sculling on flat water were not reproducing what I would have to pull. So the boat are so skinny and light. So I bought this little, uh, fiberglass fishing boat <laughs> and i i built a, a oars two oars on a like a sliding seat and stuff 
and I would let the outboard engine in the water so it would have more drag. And I would just go in the bay. And for two years, I did this. And I couldn't find the money to buy the boat because my, my idea was, well, Americans, they're like winners. They're like Guinness World Record breakers. So I need to have the best boat. And the best boat is Raynock in, in England, the boat builder. And that's about, what, 20, 30, let's say 40,000 pounds you know, to buy the new boat. But I said, well, if I want to have a sponsor to help me pay, I want to say I want to bet the Guinness record. So it was like, and I'm very competitive. Whatever I do, you know, my success is not to win, but I'll do my best. You know, I'll, I'll go as hard as I can. So then couldn't find the money. 2014, had to give up. But a friend of mine said, you know, the ocean has always be there. So find another way. And then that's when I called Chris. I said, Chris, I can't find the money. Well, you know, there's another option where it's a paper seat option where you just pay for your seat. We'll lend you the boat. We'll bring it to California. Just hide to find the crew. And in fact, I can put you in touch with other people that could be part of that rowing team. And I said, yeah, but, you know, if I, if I do this once in my life, I want, I want to do as hard as I can. And especially I don't want to train my ass off because usually, excuse my French, in general, I, when I do something, I want to do my best version. So I'll probably train every day to be as fit as I can, you know, and, and to avoid failure, obviously. So I want the team in, in the people in my team to have the same mindset. And one way to have the people that are competitive would be to say, yes, we want to beat the Guinness record right now. It's 43 days. How about we try to beat this? And then one by one. Uh, so first it was uh, Carlo, this American guy who lives next door. He was a rowing coach at UC Davis in California for 10 years. And he said, I'd be interested to be part of the team. Okay, that's two people. We're looking for four. And then Fian, um, this amazing ocean rower who you know, already had crossed the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, both had the Guinness record to say, wow, I want to be part of that team so, as well. So we were three. And then I convinced my friend Thiago from Brazil to join. And he was a really good rower as well when he was younger. So then we had a stellar crew of four guys. And we called ourselves Team United Nations. There was a Brazilian, an Icelandic, an American, and a French guy. And, and we took off in 2016 from Monterey to California and took us uh, 39 days to get there in a classic boat. So um, that's one of those old style, like V-shape rather than the newest side, the different styles of rowing boats. Had a blast. It was so hard. I said, never again. I'll never do that shit again. Yeah, that backfired. <laughs> um, but you say so you did break a world record, well, right? 39 days, I think. You got the Guinness World Record. Yeah. Correct. Congratulations. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. That was a chair on the on the cake, you know. It, it was, uh, in retrospective, it was what put our team together. We had the same objective. It was not my particular um, uh, goal. And if we had come after, I didn't care too much. But because it was the team's will, I did. We we did all we can to beat that record. Uh, <clears throat> especially when you come with four cultures that have four filters of life, different four personalities, completely different. Uh, you know, what happens in a boat stays in a boat. Some, you know, things happen, but... <laughs> <laughs> you can't tell me. Yeah, no. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've spoken to people before a lot about the kind of the personality clashes and things. But one of the things I really wanted to get to today with the time that we have left is you now have a major challenge coming up. So in, I think, 30 days, actually, you're you're gearing up to... Uh, to take on a 2,400 nautical mile challenge. You're in a custom-built kayak. And there's a, there's a couple of things that I really want to dig into this. So first of all, in a moment, if you can tell us all about that challenge, where you're going, um, but also the two things that I'm really interested in uh, are the fact that it's kayaking, which I know is very different from rowing. So there's a lot of kind of very technical differences that are going to make this really challenging for you. And then the other is that it's just you on your own. And that solo element, I think, is really interesting, right? Because there's a lot of psychological uh, pressure, stress, and duress that you're going to be under there. And I'm curious to know what you're doing to prepare for that. I know there's a yeah, lot no, in there, but they're the two things that I love it. to get into. So when I said I, I wouldn't do anything like this again, you know, it's, I started to read books and get inspired again. And then I read about another of your uh, compatriots, uh, Peter Bray, and he crossed the North Atlantic in a kayak from Canada to Ireland. And he did that in 2001. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. It's a, it's a kayak. Look at that kayak. It's beautiful made. That was back in 20 years ago in 2001. 
And it, it really came out of the radar because he landed in Ireland uh, September 9th, 2001. And that was the two days before the Twin Towers. So unfortunately, it was not known. And I looked into it and said, well, the big difference between rowing and a, and a kayak is, is the vessel itself. <clears throat> and this vessel is much smaller. You're closer to the water, about, what, 30 centimeters? Like, what is it in inches? What, 10, 10, 15 inches from the water. So any wave would swamp your cockpit, which is much smaller. You barely can stand on this thing. <clears throat> Less wide, much closer to the water. The cabin is smaller. So it brings a, a new element of, of, um, of challenges, right? And then, so I looked around what other people had done this. And there's literally under 10 adventures across ocean on, on kayaking. Um, and then when I stopped, rowing i went into surf skiing surf ski is a performance paddling kayak it's it's very narrow very fast and had such a blast so that was a technique that i knew and i said well would it be cool to have the same vessel and try to do it and well why don't i do it next to my home like from california to hawaii so i called peter bray and said hey peter tell me about your boat oh i loved it i never capsized it were really well made by this fellow called uh, rob philo in devon so I called Rob. I said, Rob, would you build a boat for me? I want to do this. Well, look, it was 20 years ago. I'm retired. I have no shop. I can't, I can't do it for you. And I must have been convincing enough to say, look, I want, to, I want to do it with you. So give me a budget. Let's start working on, on, on the design to improve on Peter Bray's boat. And that's how he got ro- the ball rolling. Got the boat. Uh, we built it uh, for last year. But unfortunately, COVID came and I had to postpone it a year. But the challenge is going to be for me to be alone, like you said, because I'm a 100% extrovert. I love people. All the adventures I've done were with people. And in fact, I give the best version of me as a team because I want to be here for them. You know, like the team, the idea of suffering together and finishing together strong, it doesn't matter how long, but we're like brothers for life. I love this. So being alone how am I going to, am I going to talk to myself after a week? You know, what, what is it going to be? So I tried to prepare for this. I had a, a mental coach in France. His name is Pierre who said, okay, here's the things you might come across. Here's how you could prepare. He's, um, you know, see, I'm very emotional. So he says, okay, your emotions going to be a strength, but they could be a weakness as well. So how do you optimize on using them? Blah, blah, blah. And, and I've been preparing for two years. So, Hopefully, I'll be up to the task. I think I am ready. Uh, you never know, but, but you have to try. I'm, I'm definitely pushing my own envelope there on that one. Yeah, it's amazing. I love the fact that you're that you're doing that, that you're pushing your boundaries. Um, and, and this is something that I find particularly fascinating because much like you just described, on a personal level, any of the endurance challenges I've ever done in my life have always been with other people. And I am very aware that I get my power, which I think is what you're saying as well. I get my power from being with other people and the camaraderie and the experience. And particularly when other people are feeling low and having their down moments, I like to get my arm around them. And I know that makes me feel good. And that in turn helps me cope with how bad I'm feeling. Right. And so that's always, that's always been something for me. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this challenge at the end of this year solo as well, because I, I'm, you know, I'm curious to know how I'll survive. And that's just a few days. So, I mean, you're going to be away for how long do you think roughly? So I think about 70 days. Um, there's really no benchmark uh, to say that the crossing has been done once in a kayak uh, by Ed Gillette. And Ed Gillette is a legend. I will never reach what he's done. First, he was the first one to do it. Second, he did it back in 1987. And he left, he, he got a double kayak. So you imagine you're, you see kayak, you take a double one. Off the shelf, he improved it a bit by making it stronger, but he put the foot in the front, about 100 kilos of foot, and he left. Back in 87, there was no sat phone. He navigated. There was no GPS. He navigated with a sextant. At night, he would slide down the cockpit and put a top over himself. He would inflate two pontoons in the side so he would have a better stability at night. But basically, he would wake up when there's an, a, a wave would come over and had to bail out. I mean, the guy's a legend. I met him in Monterey, uh, and he's he's going to really? be following the the crossing. Yes, yes. Because in, oh, in such amazing. a way, I, I contacted him. I said, Ed, in, in some of uh, 
some way, an old-fashioned way, I'd like to come and, and, and meet you and, and kind of ask you the permission to, uh, to be able to try to follow your strokes on the water. And he said, no, I'm not that kind of guy. You can do it. But I'll try to be here at start at the beach on Monterey when you start. And unfortunately, it was COVID. He won't be here. But he said, I'll try to be there when you get there in Hawaii. But the guy's a legend. And there's a book called The Pacific Alone. I invite people to read it because it's, it's such an amazing adventure. Those guys are trailblazers. You know, I'm doing it with the, all the, uh, the technology of nowadays. And, you know, and, and there's so many lessons I learned from his own crossing. His crossing, you know, he arrived, his legs were atrophied because after 64 days at sea, he couldn't walk. So I tried to improve on that, and, and I worked with Rob Philo, the boat builder, to say, well, how about we can mitigate and use the lower limbs? So, well, the one way would be to add a pedaling system so you can switch upper body, lower body. So I added this. Now, the pure kayaker is going to say, well, this is a pedal boat. It's not a kayak. You know, it's my adventure. <laughs> Ed Gillette, in his book, said, I had, had I done this adventure 10 times, I would have failed five times. That's 50% rate of success or failure. And I've got two kids. I don't want to die. I'm an adventurer. I love life to the fullest. So I want to be here to tell the story. I want 80%, 90% success rate. So having this paddling system just makes sense for me, right? I improved on the design of Peter Bray, and that's what I decide. I'm, the, I'm going to be the one in the seat paddling every day. So I think what's, what's really special about that, Cyril, is, you know, Ed was the, was the trailblazer. He's the one that we can all look to and say, he showed us it was possible. But you, you as the second person, I would say fast follower, but it's it's like thirty years, so it's not really fast follower. Twenty years, but but you as the the somebody coming through, you what you're going to do is really important as well because you're going to show other people that more people can do it. Like you don't have to be mm-hmm. so gnarly like Ed, but it's still going to be an incredible challenge. This is going to be the hardest thing mentally and physically you've ever done. I yes. would say. Um, but more people will be able to look at it and go, well, well, Cyril did it. I think I can do it. And they're going to go and take it on. And I think that's an amazing thing. <clears throat> oh, yeah. And I got to tell you, to be able to speak to Peter Bray was amazing. Then I spoke to Scott Donaldson. Scott Donaldson is another kayaker. He crossed the Tasman Sea from Australia to New Zealand. And I spoke to him. And like you said, I saw his craft. And that was amazing. There's another guy called Alexander Doba who just passed. He crossed four times the Atlantic on his boat. And then you see that. You say, okay, he's done it. How did he do it? How can I learn from that? You know, and I spoke to Justin Jones on a double. He crossed the Tasman Sea. And I spoke to him as well. And it's amazing that, you know, it, the, the community of paddlers is so available. And these adventurers are amazing people, but they're available. You know, and that's what I love about this sport. You could talk to them, you know. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And I, I read in your um, in your press release that you put out recently that you're 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 trying to put on up to twenty five pounds of excess weight just because you know you're going to lose so much weight uh, over the trip. Yeah. How's that going? Is that good? I guess uh, you get to good. eat some nice food now. <laughs> oh, you know it's it's actually not that uh, nice because I'm still training two or three hours a day now. Uh, I'm kind of temper- tapering because I've got one month to go. So I'll go down to one hour a day and, and just mostly stretching and just paddling just for the feel. But um, getting ready is, is, uh, is important. I'm going to spend about six out, eight, six to 8,000 calories a day if I paddle 12 to 14 hours a day. Now, it won't be that, that days that long all the time. I might be, have a day of eight hours or 10 hours just because I have to see how I feel, how the ocean is, is looking. Uh, but in general, the rule is, I'll probably eat 6,000 calories a day. If I spend eight, I'm going to be at a deficit of 2,000 calories a day. That means that I'm going to lose weight. Based on my first crossing where I lost 15 pounds, um, then it was 30, 40 days, 15 pounds. If I do 70 days, I'll probably lose 20, 25 pounds. Now, I'm trying to not lose those, these pounds. So I'm, I'm literally looking at a nutrition lot, and I'm working with this company called Standard Process, and they created a bar, it's 550 calories that has all the nutrients that are specific for ultra endurance. Then I'll have freeze-dried food and I have, I'll try to eat as much as I can, but you never know, you know, sleep deprivation, working hard like all day and being on a wet environment, do stuff to your body that you don't know. I might go into a survival mode where my body uses more energy than I normally do, all these things. But yeah, I mean, I bulked 
I now I'm 82 kilos, so that's 179 pounds for a guy that is not that tall. I'm 5'10, so it's 1 meter 75. So I'm bigger than I'm, I'm maybe six kilos more than I am normally, which is good. I'll probably lose them. Uh, hopefully, I lose them because <laughs> then I go and I do that picture <laughs> like everybody, like, yeah, I'm strong, look, I'm skinny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, I mean, obviously because of the nature of the challenge, it's completely, you know, unsupported. So you'll carry everything from, from when you set out, when you push out all your food, presumably you desalinate water, you'll desalinate seawater on the go. Is that how you'll, you'll get fresh water? Yeah. Correct. And yeah. the definition wow. of my trip has been designed by me. If I wanted to have a sail, I could do it with a sail, just like I did with a paddling. Now, my own definition, I set the boundaries myself. And I said, okay, I want to do it human power. So everything I do will have to be human power. And I thought it was, it's cool to do it unsupported uh, because from the moment you take off from the pier to the moment you arrive in Hawaii, it's going to be solely on myself. So I need to carry everything. That means tools to repair. That means medical kit, whatever can happen. It could break an arm. I, I mean, if I break an arm, obviously I'll probably have to be rescued, but you know, if I cut, I have to uh, solder myself or, you know, so uh, it's not sewing and if it's, if it's skin, <laughs> what's the word for it? I don't know. Uh, stitch. And then, stitch. yeah, stitch, stitch, stitch. I'll, I'll sew my own skin. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, for food, I have to have the food for 70 days. And how do you do that? How do you carry that much weight? It's about 120 kilos, that's 240 pounds, 250 pounds. Um, but I, I really like the concept of once you take off, all you have is in the boat and that's it. You have to build things. You have to be able to repair. You got a hole in the, in the hull. You got a carbon fiber and, and, and screws and you have to do it yourself. You know, your, your battery runs out. What is your plan B to have uh, maybe a GPS that is solely battery? How many batteries do you put? How do you, you know, pack them so that they're good all the way to Hawaii? The watermaker is one of these things. You have solar panels you know, batteries, those will power your water maker to turn the seawater into drinkable water. What if it fails? You have a backup that is manual. But this one fails. You have a backup of a backup, you know. Yeah. It's and it's it's that's why such a big adventure is so much planning. So much planning. Right. Yeah. And when you're alone, like when I took off five years ago on a boat and we were four guys, they had more experience. I didn't even know how to put a waypoint on a GPS the, the day we took off. I know the theory. You go and you put latitude, longitude number, some degrees, and then you know where to go. Now that I'm alone, I need to be able to open the electrical box and switch wires around and know where they are. This is regulator. This is the AIS. This is a GPS. I'm alone. I need to be able to talk on the container ship with my own boat. I need to see how I feel. Okay, I'm feel, I have a headache. What is this for? Is it dehydration? Is it because I'm seasick? Is it because... I'm sleep deprived it's because I'm starting hallucination. You need to be so much more aware when you're alone that makes it more challenging. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an amazing challenge. I'm I'm so excited for you, and I'm I'm excited to 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 watch and follow. Um, will you when space is at such a premium and and weight, of course, as well? You've got a lot of stuff you've got to carry. Will you allow yourself any luxury items, uh, or is there just no space for that? Uh, luxury. I mean, for me, I'll have music. I need to have good music. So I'll have a little sound system, uh, just one of those waterproof sound system. Um, but that's it. And luxury would be food, um, you know, have like pleasure food. Um, I'm going to take a liter of wine, uh, because at some, some point I, I want to have a little wine. I'm going to actually, I asked my friend, uh, Jordan to give me a flask and I, I love Irish single malt whiskey. So I'll have that when I do stones, when, when I do, you know, midpoint, I'll treat myself with a little gulp of, of whiskey. And then I, when I do the last week, take a little whiskey, obviously I'll be super careful. The first week, first two weeks are going to be the hardest because taking off from the California coast, there's a big, big current that I have to go through. And people that will follow me on the map will see that I, I make progress during the day. I lose it at night. I make progress during the day and I drift on south. You know, and they'll push me until I reach the trade trade winds, and then I'll go on. So I love chocolate, so I'll have chocolate. <laughs> on that point about the drifting, that is one of the really interesting things about these kind of challenges is that that, that speaks to the psychological element, doesn't it? Because you sometimes you're going to paddle all day, 
And because of the way that you'll move when you're sleeping, you ultimately didn't go anywhere. But that's all part of getting towards your destination. It's uh, yeah, you got to be in a certain headspace to be able to handle that. Yeah, and there's tricks to it. There's there's techniques. Like one would be to set uh, expectations that are measurable, but that are um, uh, not dependent on the result. For example, if you say I'm going to paddle. Uh, I need to do 40 miles a day because if you say I do 40 miles a day for 70 days, I get Hawaii. Okay. So it, it, uh, that's a wrong metric to have because one day is going to be stormy. You make only 20 or maybe you do 40, but the next day you lose 20. So you're going to feel bad. You start having negative thoughts. If you say, I'm going to do my best from the moment I wake up to the moment I, I go to bed to paddle for 10 hours. That's my goal to do 10 hours a day, Right. Then you do your 10 hours. If you did zero miles, you're happy about yourself. It's positive. You keep going. And in the end, it's grinding do it every day and you'll make it to, to, to whatever you're, you're going. You know, it's goal setting, it's expectation, having the right expectations or actually no expectations. Uh, there's Antonio. Uh, he's, he's the one who crossed from Ho uh, California to Hawaii last year on a standard paddle. And he was like always saying, es lo que toca, which is that's how it is. You know, he, he had these strengths, mental strengths of saying, this is how it is. You know, I'm not making progress. That's how it is. The next day he would make 60. That's how it is. Both ways, positive and negative. I, I think, um, uh, I think we, we have a similar opinion on this, it seems. But um, I, I think that taking on challenges, whatever those challenges are, the relative to you, uh, not, you know, it's deeply personal, right? But when you take on challenges and you push yourself out of your comfort zone, if you can get to that place where you start to be uh, like your friend and say it's how it is that that is power when you get back into real life that is that is a powerful piece of knowledge that you that you can learn to not worry about the things you can't control and just focus on the things you can if you if you learn that skill that's a genuine life skill right and you know it's it's funny everybody asks me why do you want to do this and uh, you know I, I told you in the podcast that's kind of my personality. That it, it, to me, it's it's flow towards my path. Now, my friend Steve from Canada, who I paddle the Yukon with, and he said, "You know, Cyril, you're 40 years old. You probably will live 80 years old, 80 years, and those two months are going to be really, really tough, right? But look at it as it's nothing compared to your 80 years, two months. But those two months." are going to define the next 40 years of your life. The way you think, those skills that you're going to learn are going to define how you, your attitude towards everything in the next 40 years. And that, that goes back to what you're saying. You know, I'm going to learn skills that I don't know that that's what I'm going to learn. And that perspective of saying, that's how it is, you know? And it could be how hand, handle the death of my parents, how to handle losing a house by a fire, how to have an accident and not being able to walk. I'll have that power to say, that's yeah. how it is. And you've just, you've just, um, if you, it, when you've got some time on your, on your paddles, you maybe listen to some of the uh, episodes before, but the first ever episode of this podcast, that's, I explained the name 28 summers and, and that's a, essentially what it's all about is, you know, optimizing your life and doing things that add value and, 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 you know, kind of purpose to your life. And it's funny, you, you mentioned that people always ask you what you, why you're doing what you do. I, I, I always think, I never ask that question. I never ask anybody that I interview, why are you doing it? Probably because I get it. I totally get it. I can see exactly why you're doing it because I understand the, the planning is intoxicating and difficult and frightening. The execution is challenging uh, and joyful and, and difficult. And, and I just get it. I totally get it. I, I, there's no question in my mind why on earth would somebody want to do this. I, I, um, I'm in awe, totally in awe, Cyril, and I'm, I'm really genuinely excited for you. Thank you so much. You know, it's, it, does, it doesn't make sense for everyone. Uh, let me tell you quickly. Uh, so when I, when I said I wanted to cross the first Pacific, uh, I talked to my wife, who now is my ex-wife. And I, I always, you know, I'm, I've got fires in my eyes. I'm going to cross the ocean. Maybe I see a whale. Maybe I see dolphin. Maybe I see the, the you know, birds. And it's going to be an adventure. I love it. She was like, what are you talking about? You got responsibilities. You got to make, you know, pay the mortgage. You got to pay. You got two kids. You might die. This is ridiculous. She could not see it the same way. And I was seeing it the same way. Like, I'm going to show my kids that you could do anything you want to. That the life is a limit. You want to go to space? Do it. You know, it takes planning. It takes discipline. It's not just saying this. So not everyone will see it the same way, you know. And 
you have to you got to follow your heart. I think when we speak, would be to say, okay, I'm not going to do it, and then be dying inside. You know, Ross Savage, another British woman, amazing. You you know Ross Savage. She when she she wrote that that uh, obituary or what uh, the future obituary. There's two ways. Um, she was working in a, in a lawyer or like as a lawyer in London and say, there's two ways I could see my life when I die. One is looking myself as a life of adventure for the next 40 years or one of keeping my work and be that same life for 40 years. And she said, well, I want to look back in my life as an adventure. And she decided to switch. Not everybody will see it. Maybe people will say you're crazy, but you got to be true to your own nature. That's right. Yeah, what a, I think that's a perfect way to 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 bring us to a close. But I do have one final question that I always love to ask, if I, if I may, um, for people listening. So not that group of people, but the other group of people that are listening to this who are thinking, I do want to do do something. If I want to take on an adventure, whatever that may be, relative to them, and they're feeling inspired, but they perhaps don't know where to start. What would be your your kind of best advice for them? That's what I said at the very beginning. Follow what makes your heart vibrate. And, and do it, not for the result, but for the process. Like, you're 43 years old. You want to play the guitar? Play the guitar. It doesn't matter if, you're, if you can't sing. It doesn't matter. Do it for yourself. You, you think about playing guitar like a concert. No. You like to gribble, gravel. I don't know what you say, but do it because it makes you pleasure. You want to paint? Paint. Take a wine canvas and paint. It doesn't look good. A kid doesn't matter. He likes to draw. He draws. Be like a kid, like simple things. Be like a beginner and do what makes you happy. In the end, it's going to trigger into doing something else and else and else. And you'll be happy. And that's, uh, I mean, adventures are daily. They could be small. They could be medium. They could be big. You don't have to cross an ocean to make you happy. If, if being happy is taking your grandpa and walk to the park, do that. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Well, Cyril, uh, amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your, your journey and your story um, really excited for you really excited to watch the challenge and uh, hope to be able to speak to you afterwards and, and hear about your reflections oh definitely yes yes in uh, three four months when i'm uh, i'm back on land and i'm back into uh, looking at my experience having a, a new perspective i'd be happy to share it with you awesome well thank you so much for your time my man i appreciate it aloha <laughs> Unfortunately, his attempt didn't go according to plan, and he had to be rescued and brought back to land, collecting his ocean kayak days later as it drifted across the Pacific. As you can imagine, though, Cyril was not deterred, and he is already gearing up for another attempt in 2022. Please be sure to follow this amazing guy on Instagram and keep track of his preparation. You can find him on there as CyrilDX. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. It means the world to me that so many of you are taking the time to listen, share and review the podcast. That's it from me today. I'm going to be back soon with another amazing guest. But in the meantime, stay happy, stay healthy and remember to live adventurously.